This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, December 17th. I'm Rob Bluey, Editor-in-Chief. And I'm Ginny Maltabano. On today's show, we're featuring an interview with Chris Malagisi, host of the Conservative Book Club podcast. We'll hear his recommendations for last-minute Christmas gifts for your friends and family. We also have your letters to the editor, and we share a touching story about actor Gary Sinise and Gold Star Children. But first, a commentary from Heritage Foundation spokeswoman Genevieve Wood about health care. At a time when progressives are clamoring to enact Medicare for All, Genevieve offers a solution that will serve patients and consumers without turning over more power to government. One thing most Americans agree on is that our health care system needs an overhaul. Some people believe the answer is more money from Washington and bureaucratic agencies making sure everyone is following the rules. Others suggest we should import the kind of government-run models they have in Europe and Canada. A third option would redirect our current system, putting patients and doctors in the driver's seat and making healthcare providers and insurance companies compete for customers. As you weigh the options, here are a few basic facts you need to know. Long before Obamacare came along in 2009, Washington was already in the business of picking winners and losers in health care. Shortly after World War II, we began giving tax breaks to those who got health care via their employer. In the long run, however, the biggest winner was the insurance industry, as more and more people became members of group plans as opposed to purchasing individual insurance. More Washington meddling occurred in the 1960s with the creation of Medicare and Medicaid. While created with good intentions, these government programs have skyrocketed in terms of cost, but have nosedived when it comes to consumer choice. Instead of allowing individuals to decide where and from whom they want to get their medical care, Washington makes that call, selecting various special interests to qualify for those tax dollars. And then came the mother of all meddling, Obamacare, with a huge push to not only expand Medicaid, but to take over what was left of the private insurance market through more government mandates and regulations. The result? Premiums doubled in the first four years of Obamacare. Last year, the average monthly premium for individual insurance was $476 per person per month in the 39 states participating in healthcare.gov. But while premiums have gone up, choices have gone down. In more than 80% of counties across the country, there is only one or two healthcare plans available on the Obamacare exchange. That means millions of Americans now have far fewer choices when it comes to their doctor and healthcare network. Perhaps that is why less than half of the 24 million people projected to sign up have actually done so. And for the ones who have, the vast majority, over 86%, were put on Medicaid, which, by the way, doesn't ensure they now have health care because increasing numbers of doctors and other medical providers are no longer accepting Medicaid. So what about trying out what we've seen in other countries, a full-blown government-run healthcare approach? Let's start close to home by considering our neighbors to the north. When compared to 11 similar countries, including the United States, a recent study shows that whether it's emergency room visits, same or next day appointments, seeing a specialist, or getting elective surgery, Canada's wait times 
are the worst. In fact, in 2016, Canadians waited an average of five months for medically necessary specialist treatments. Maybe that's why almost 60,000 of them visit the U.S. and other countries each year for medical care. And speaking of other countries, over in the United Kingdom, where they've had 70 years to figure out how to run a government-controlled healthcare system, over 80% of doctors there say their workplaces are understaffed. That probably explains why over 50,000 non-urgent surgeries were canceled in 2018 when their system was overwhelmed by flu season. So if more money and more direction from Washington isn't the answer, and neither is putting everyone in a European-style national healthcare system, what is? Well, what if we tried the completely opposite approach and put individuals and patients, also known as consumers, in the driver's seat? As opposed to the government deciding which medical and insurance providers get your tax dollars, you decide. Think about it. In industry after industry, where businesses have to compete, what happens? Choices and innovation increase. Prices and other barriers to access come down. A similar approach needs to be taken in reforming our healthcare system. It won't happen overnight, but even a small step in the right direction shows the possibilities. Seven states that obtained waivers from Obamacare mandates, giving them the freedom to try new approaches, are now projecting higher enrollments in 2019 at significantly lower cost. 30% lower in Maryland, almost 20% in Alaska and Minnesota, and 15% in New Jersey. And all the approaches used to achieve these savings relied on tools that help those with pre-existing conditions get access to care. And that's just one example of what can happen when the operating philosophy is more choices and competition as opposed to one size fits all. Individuals and families have different needs and preferences when it comes to most things in life, including their health care. It's time our politicians respect their wishes and our laws allow more choice. If you enjoy listening to the Daily Signal podcast, would you consider a year-end gift to support our work? Your gift enables us to keep doing groundbreaking reporting and the best conservative policy analysis on today's most critical issues. Just go to dailysignal.com slash donate to make your tax-deductible gift today. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. Joining us today on the Daily Signal podcast is Chris Malagisi, host of the Conservative Book Club podcast, which is powered by our friends at the Ricochet Audio Network. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Love being here in the Heritage Daily Signal studios. It is great to have you. You're a longtime friend. Appreciate you being on the show with us. Tell us about the Conservative Book Club podcast. What is it that you do? So, no, thank you for the opportunity. The Conservative Book Club podcast is um, one of the fastest growing podcasts uh, out there for the right. We basically are the podcast of the Conservative Book Club, which had 750,000 members across the country. And for years, I had done interviews with big authors, noteworthy leaders, and otherwise. And what we decided to do is to turn it into a podcast form. And basically, we are interviewing the best and the brightest conservative authors uh, and public leaders out there. Uh, as you said, we're on the Ricochet Podcast Network now, and it's now going to be housed on uh, townhall.com. 
Um, but if you're interested in learning more about conservative books and authors in an unfiltered medium where authors have an opportunity to talk about the th- their book without being interrupted by you know the mainstream media and otherwise, this is a wonderful way to learn about those type of books and authors. You hosted over 350 interviews, and I'm sure that number only continues to grow. What are some of your personal favorites? Ooh, ooh, that's tough. Uh, you know, as I, I guess I, I'm at Heritage, so I can say this, and I know your audience would appreciate this, is I'd, I'd have to say Thomas Sowell, as just a, being a conservative geek that I am, is probably my favorite interview. Thomas Sowell had a new book recently come out. Um, he's, he's somebody who I've respected and admired for many, many years, and he doesn't do many interviews. So when he wanted to do not only an interview, but a podcast interview, um, I, I loved it. Uh, t- basically, it was just the opportunity to talk with somebody who really inspired, I think, I could safely say millions of conservatives, especially when it comes to uh, economics, uh, culture, and society. And to have that opportunity to talk with him uh, was, it was incredible. But that's the one that sticks out in my head the most. That's great. Well, it is Christmas season after all, and there's just a few days of shopping left. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show is you have some lists to share with us about uh, some of the big conservative books and and also some of the dumbest liberal books. So <laughs> let's start with the conservative books. Uh, what can you share with our audience about uh, maybe some last minute gifts that they would consider for their family and friends? You know, we put, as we put together the top 10 conservative books of, of the year, every year we've done this the last four years. And just for fun, we also put together the top five dumbest liberal books of the year, which could be more than five, but we try to limit it just to keep everyone's interest. But for the top 10 conservative books of the year, um, we could start with number one on the list. I think by far uh, one of the, and by the way, I should say that how we put these lists together are based on what our readers and members like, um, as well as books that did well sales-wise and were influential in that year. So our number one is Greg Lukianoff's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And Greg Lukianoff, if you're not familiar with the name, he's the president of FIRE, which is a free speech college uh, group. And what he did basically in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is for the first time, this is not a red meat book, this is a scientific exploration in understanding what the effect of college campuses is with terms like microaggressions and trigger warnings and what exactly that's doing to college students on campus, as in they're not being prepared to when they come in the real world. You know, your boss doesn't give you trigger warnings when they want certain projects done on a time and stuff like that. But they, he and his co-author, Jonathan Haidt, did a lot of research, spent a lot of time in trying to understand the actual harm that that's doing to students, um, especially when they get into the workforce. So that's our number one book. Number two book is Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. And Jordan Peterson is probably the breakout performance of the year. And while his book, 12 Rules for Life, is not overtly political in any way, it also really is, it focuses though on the importance of civil society and the importance of families, schools, churches, communities, and how they play a role in the lives of the maturation of an individual. And he is just somebody who's just out outspoken and is able to go toe-to-toe with the political correct communi- communities around the country. I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the videos uh, that... He has uh, his own podcast, He too, has his own so podcast, yes, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, no, he's really taken off this year, and uh, and I'm glad that his book is so high on your list. Uh, we, we love him. Um, number three is Roger Scruton's book, um, Conservatism, an Invitation to the Great Traditions. So a little hoity-toity, but Roger Scruton is somebody who uh, we respect. He 
wrote a book in trying to understand the conservatism and where it comes from um, in, in regards to Western civilization. And why this is important is that, you know, with Donald Trump, he's obviously brought this this new age of conservatism, if we can call it that exactly. But a lot of conservative scholars are trying to figure out the future of the conservative movement and where it's going. And there are authors and some others that we have on this list that are trying to dabble in understanding where exactly the conservative movement is going. And I think Scruton provides a wonderful uh, texts and foundation and understanding where we were in order to know where we want to go. Thank you for mentioning him. He gave a speech here at the Heritage Foundation uh, not too long ago, uh, defending the free market uh, at mm-hmm. a time when socialism appears to be on the rise. So again, another uh, strong recommendation. And uh, you, by the way, you can check out his uh, his speech on our Heritage Events podcast if you want to listen to it. Go ahead, Chris. Hey. Continue. Uh, number four on the list is an, another one I put up there with Roger Scruton as somebody who had a great contribution to that same topic area is Patrick Janine's book, Why Liberalism Failed. Patrick Janine is a professor at Notre Dame. Um, he has been very outspoken in recent years about um, not only about conservatism and where it's going, but in Western civilization – uh, how has the West gotten to the point where we have a, l- a lot of problems these days? You know, the d- d- democracy experiment has worked in many ways, but it has not worked in other ways. So his basic thesis is that when Western civilization was coming together, we made a dis- conscious decision to focus on the liberty aspect of the individual and society as opposed to the virtue aspect of it, being good citizens. Um, and he thinks that that decision pretty much has brought us to the point where we're now having this 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 um, you know bipolar moment this this conscience of a western civilization moment trying to understand where to go and it's just a wonderful read um, it's not not even that long of a read but if you got a friend that's really into the weeds that's a wonderful book for them one other book I would highly recommend too if you have children I recently I know Rob has children I I just recently had a newborn as well you should check out Karen Pence and Charlotte Pence, Karen Pence being the second lady of the United States, a book on uh, Marlon Bundo, A Day in the Life of the Vice President. It's a wonderful children's book. Uh, the reason why we have it on the list is is not, a little different from other books is because it caused quite a controversy earlier this year. When, it sure did. Um, you know, the book's just a wonderful book about the, the BOTUS, the bunny of the United States. This is an Marlon Bundo is an actual bunny uh, of the vice presidents. And Charlotte Pence and Karen Pence wrote this book as a way to kind of educate children about what exactly the vice president does on a day-to-day basis. But John Oliver, host of This Week with John Oliver and HBO, just an awful show, but John Oliver decided uh, to make uh, fun of Mike Pence and his views about family and uh, gay, lesbian type issues. He decided to write his own version of this book where he decided to make Marlon Bundo gay. And it's a story about him and his, uh, his, his lover. And um, this caused a lot of controversy international, by the way, international news outlets were covering this. And he got he even did a live audio version book of this where, you know, actors like John Lithgow and others participated in it. And, and, you know, it, it was it's sad because Charlotte and Karen Pence had very good intentions behind this book. They wanted to educate children about you know, how our government works, how the vice president, what the vice president does. And all the money pretty much was going to charity right. for, for veterans groups. So John Oliver, you know, it's very pathetic um, that John Oliver would do something like this. But if you see his show, you kind of get it. And it's, But you know what? To the Pence's credit, they handled it with grace. And we put it on the list to, you know, just show what 
good characters they they were this year. Well, Ginny, I I think that uh, the Pences might make some great guests on the Problematic Women Show <laughs> for 2019. Would. So maybe we should work on <laughs> having them for the interview. Chris, th- that's a great list of five books. There, we're going to make sure in the show notes we list the full ten uh, that you have and uh, and links, of course, if people would like to uh, to go and purchase them. And with so many college students coming home for the holidays, a lot of them get you know almost a month off. Several of those books, I think, would be some good quality reading over <laughs> Christmas time. All right, let's switch to the top five dumbest liberal books. And I will say, <laughs> going through this list, it just reminded me how much happened this year. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was a great year for conservative books, but it was so much fun for liberal books, too. So number five on this list is uh, called Unhinged, written by Omarosa Manigault Newman, who was famous because of The Apprentice Show. She was on three times, but she was also hired in the Trump White House this uh, in 2017 to be the director of communications for the Office of Public Liaison. And if you know Omarosa, you know she's a little controversial. She caused, um, from what reports say, a lot of internal problems in the White House. And infamously, when she was fired by John Kelly, um, according to some reports, she tried to storm into the East Wing and talk to President Trump to kind of figure to see what was going on and why he was firing her. Uh, but the book is basically it's uh, uh, trying to get back at the president. Uh, talks a lot about lurid stories and. Uh, she did a lot of tape recording. Their conversations might even be illegally. So even though the book's called Unhinged, it could really be about her. I don't know. But uh, number four on the list is Full Disclosure by Stormy Daniels. Yes, that is the title of the book. Full Disclosure, Stormy Daniels being the porn star actress that supposedly had an affair with President Trump. Um, and basically a, a great addition to American literature here, no doubt. Um, <laughs> you know, it's basically telling her story as a porn star and, and a lot of unnecessary details about uh, the supposed affair between them. I would not recommend this. Not the family book for the holidays easily. Uh, number three is Bob Woodward's book, Fear. Now, this was... This was tough because we, we like Bob Woodward as a journalist. I mean, he usually is, is a pretty good journalist, and you could disagree on certain things, but he's usually very credible in his search-finding re- reporting that he does. But for some reason, you know, not not every um, author that's credible like him gets it right. And unfortunately, he uses a lot of innuendo, a lot of second, third, or fourth sourcing for his stories here. And it's a shame because the basic thrust of the book was to understand how the Trump White House works, which is historically a very interesting, you know, behind-the-scenes tale about how a very different president uh, has a different White House in the way that he operates. And he decided, unfortunately, to go lowest common denominator here and you know, instead talks about all the other, you know, innuendo stuff. And it's a shame because Bob Woodward is better than that. Uh, number two and well-deserved is James Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty. And James Comey just, uh, you know, he this is his version of the events that had transpired in 2015 leading up to the 2016 election, the Russian collusion, you know, Andrew McCabe and Peter Str- you know, all his version of all that type of stuff. Um not worth your time in reading, and it's a shame for someone who had reached the highest levels of law enforcement in our country uh, to, and call it a higher loyalty. It's, it's just it's a shame. And number one, and well-deserved, as people, as your listeners probably remember earlier this year, uh, Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury. Um, if we had the top 10 fiction books of the year, this would be <laughs> number one on there as well. Um, you know, Michael Wolff, who even at one point, I think it was on an MSNBC interview, had stated that he was making up some stuff to fill in the gaps of whatever second, third, fourth sourcing he was doing in innuendo. And, you know, this is a great work of fiction, but it was fun watching the left, especially MSNBC. I remember watching Lawrence O'Donnell say what the 
greatest tell-all book of all time for a president uh, about the behind-the-scenes stuff. And, you know, everybody came out and said that, you know, most of the people that were interviewed by him that he misquoted, misstated, and, uh, you know, took took things at liberty. And you know, it's just it was a big farce. But it sold a lot of books, so it deserves number one on our top ten Top five dumbest liberal books of 2018. Well, thank you, Chris, for for that list. And again, we're not encouraging our listeners to purchase any of those. In fact, we're we're suggesting that you stay away from all all five. Uh, So, Chris, I want to shift gears a bit because you've had a busy year in the podcasting space. You hosted a major event with our friends at the American Enterprise Institute in Ricochet. Um, You hosted a big event here at the Heritage Foundation. You worked closely with uh, our colleague Michelle Cordero of the Heritage Explains podcast. And then you've seen a lot of tremendous growth in your own. How did you get involved in podcasting uh, to begin with? I appreciate that. Um, You know, I worked at Salem Media. Uh, They were starting to invest in podcasting and they saw that as our membership was increasing with Conservative Book Club, that they thought a podcast would be a wonderful way for our members to communicate uh, with with us and the authors and, you know, have a more intimate experience. So we started it off. Um, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this, and, you know, podcasting on the right has really been growing in the last two, three years in particular. Um, I think people are looking, uh, especially conservatives, are looking for more thoughtful exchanges of big ideas. You know, a lot of times we... By the time we get to primetime news on Fox, we kind of already know what they're going to talk about. And we want a little bit more than just one segment on a topic. We, we want a genuine exchange of ideas. And the, I think the think tanks, Heritage um, and some of your other competitors I won't name, but are really leading the way in doing this. And, very, um, and you know, Heritage has a great history. You know, Rob, you know, you helped lead the, the, the bloggers briefing, which is very consequential in the late 2000s, early 20-teens about getting the right – Uh, a growing consciousness of social and digital media and the influence it can have in spreading conservative values. And I think podcasting is just that next iteration of this digital revolution. Um, So podcasting, you know, we, we, uh, as it grew, Ricochet noticed us and asked us to come on and Ricochet has kind of become, you know, a center-right platform for uh, conservative podcasts out there. And and I think as we build up and we get closer to 2020, we're going to see a lot more podcasts come about. And, you know, I feel like in a, it, we're kind of in a 2006, 2007 mode of, of uh, podcasting. What I mean by that is that, you know, digital media in, in the mid-2000s was still a growing medium and there were still opportunities for people to come on board and participate and to gain market share, if you will, in a way, um, to help spread um, ideas. And those that have gotten in um, early have been very influential. And you could see Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin or, um, you know, Adam Carolla even or Joe Rogan and the influence that they've had. And I think as um, liberals, they got jumped onto this a couple of years before we did, kind of catching up a little bit. But uh, there really is an opportunity to tell our story to new audiences as we get closer to the 2020 election. And um, I think pot, the revolution will be podcasted. Well, the, reaching those new audiences is certainly a priority for us as well. So we're uh, we're all in. We have five podcasts uh, originally produced between the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation. And uh, we have many listeners who uh, hopefully right now will uh, take an opportunity to not only check them out, but uh, Conservative Book Club podcast as well. Absolutely. And it seems like right now that podcasting is booming in the conservative movement. Chris, what are some of the top conservative podcasts that you enjoy listening to? 
Uh, outside the Daily Signal podcast, of course, Daily <laughs> podcast, uh, right side of history and problematic women. Um, I, I generally I love SCOTUS one on one. I genuinely love it, and I love what Heritage did, especially during the Kavanaugh hearings. How influential it probably was one of the most influential podcasts during that time. If you really wanted to get up to date information on what was going with Kavanaugh, but you know some of the ones that I, I enjoy personally. I mean, I obviously Ben Shapiro. Um, you know the the substandard, the weekly standard one with the the Sunny Bunch, Jonathan Last, and Vic Manis. They all they do is talk about Star Wars and movies. And I'm a big movie buff. I almost actually majored in cinema studies in college, so I, I appreciate that somewhere on the right they're talking about cultural type thing, and I, I appreciate that. But to be honest with you, the one that I listen to religiously is not even political. Um, if you're a big Breaking Bad fan or Better Call Saul fan, uh, which is the prequel to the Breaking Bad series, the Better Call Saul podcast is one of the most interesting podcasts out there. They get the director and the producers to come on and all the stars to talk about the show and behind the scenes why they did certain things the way they did. It's very interactive, and I, I just love it. Uh, the last one I, I, I say, the one that I listen to from time to time um, – the Femsplainers, Christina Hoff Summers' um, podcast, they do some pretty fun stuff there. And, you know, I, I just remember just some of the episodes uh, that they, you know, they take, uh, you know, like problematic women too. I mean, they, they definitely uh, take different uh, positions on issues and explain things in a way that you just can't do on a regular mainstream news program. And I, I like how it's thinking outside the box. So um, I'm not just saying it just because it's a Heritage Daily single thing, but I, I do enjoy um, the problematic women and and the femsplainers. So, yeah. That. <laughs> well, Chris, we've had a lot of recommendations on today's show, both books and podcasts. Thanks so much for spending the time with us. And we hope to have you back again soon to talk about new authors that you've interviewed and other things you're doing at the Conservative Book Club. Thanks for having me. Keep up the great work, guys. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on heritage.org today. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature some of our favorites, both on this show and in our Morning Bell email newsletter. Ginny, what's up? First up, Michael Water writes, I am always puzzled by the decision of Christian young people and their parents to attend liberal indoctrination centers posing as institutions of higher learning. That their core beliefs and worldview will be viciously attacked is a given constantly until they agree to surrender them and embrace the degradation of the mob. So many better alternatives for real learning will build up faith in God and equip one for a life of service to him. And Randy Leyendecker of Kerrville, Texas writes, Dear Daily Signal, Sebastian Gorka speaking on your podcast is absolutely correct. China is plotting to take down the U.S. economy by replacing the dollar as the international currency of trade with its own. As part of this, the Chinese are attempting to steal technology from others to accelerate their way of worldwide hegemony. Thank God we now have a president who loves this country and is unafraid to push back against all enemies, foreign and domestic. However, we have an equally sinister enemy within this country, the radical left. 
They too seek to destroy the country so that they can rebuild it to enable their tyrannical control. I, for one, have been getting tired of all the milk toast in the GOP who appear to fear their shadows. We desperately need a few good men and women to lead the battle. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave a voicemail message at 202-608-6205. Actor Gary Sinise has been an important advocate for our troops and Gold Star children for over 30 years. In 2011, he created the Gary Sinise Foundation. Sinise is the third actor to ever receive the Presidential Citizens Medal, awarded to him by President George W. Bush in 2008. It is the second-highest civilian award given to those who serve our country in an extraordinary manner. Last week, his foundation flew 1,750 Gold Star children to a trip to Disney World with their surviving parent through his foundation's Snowball Express program. He tweeted a photo and added, I'll join up in a few days. Have fun, kids. We love you. Ginny, I had the opportunity to interview Gary Sinise a few years back about why he became interested in supporting our troops. We certainly thank him for all of the work that he's done on their behalf. And we want to play a clip for you now of that interview several things. I have veterans in my family. My, my dad was in the Navy for a little while. His two brothers were in World War II, World War II uh, one in the Pacific, one in a B-17 over Germany. Uh, my grandfather was in the Army in the World War One, and then on my wife's side I have Vietnam veterans. Uh, her two brothers served in Vietnam and her sister was a captain in the Army. Her sister married a Vietnam veteran who was in the Army for 24 years. So. Uh, you know, there's kind of veterans all around me in my family. I got involved with Vietnam veterans groups early in the 80s and supported them out of the Chicago area. Then I got involved with uh, disabled American veterans. When I played a disabled Vietnam veteran in Forrest Gump, actually they called me and invited me to their national convention, which I went to, and I was very moved by the people I met there and stayed actively involved with that organization and then September 11th came along and I, I just having been around veterans for many many years having uh, a, a strong memory of what happened to our Vietnam veterans when they came home from war I just I just had to do something and you know remember you know there was a, a feeling of vulnerability and fear and grief and all kinds of things after September 11th and I just needed to channel that into something uh, in, into the you know something positive and so I started supporting our troops and going out there and visiting them on a regular basis and that's been you know well, 10 years solid now with the active duty uh, troops that we have out there. So Rob it's amazing for how many decades Gary Sinise has given back to our troops and just the incredible things he's done. It certainly is and it was a great honor to have him here at the Heritage Foundation to do that interview and Ginny, we thank him and so many others who in this Christmas season are giving back and helping to those uh, who are in need. We're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast is broadcast from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network along with our other podcasts. All of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us feedback. 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. The Daily Signal podcast will be back tomorrow with Kate and Daniel. Have a great week. You've been listening to The Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Rob Bluey and Ginny Multibano. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad.